0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, Today's guest is Lori Glenn Ryback. Uh, She is a mental health specialist and a marriage and family couples therapist who specializes in eating disorders, addiction, anxiety, depression, trauma, mood disorders. We're about to have a blast. Uh, Welcome, Lori Ryback, from Virginia. Are You're in Virginia, but you're not from there, are you?
1: I am from Virginia. Um, born and raised here, but I did complete my master's in counseling in Miami, Florida, um, and then moved back to Virginia when the pandemic hit last August.
0: I don't think I would have gotten anything completed in Miami, Florida. It just seems like such a wild, fun, and party town. Or were, you, were you in the books the whole time?
1: I was unfortunately in the books. I did a little bit of exploring while I was over there, um, but it was mostly books for me.
0: <laughs> so for someone that specialized in eating disorders, I- I'm going to guess that uh, you have a history with that personally, or is there, was it somebody in your family that you were like, I have to figure out why they just can't put the chips down?
1: So I personally don't have um, a personal story with eating disorders. Um, however, um, a lot of individuals who exhibit disordered eating or um, have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, typically they have experienced some sort of trauma in their life. Um, and when individuals experience trauma, they, they tend to um, cope with it maladaptively. And some of them end up coping with it by the way they eat. And um, so I don't have necessarily the history with eating disorders, but I have a lot of trauma-informed history um, from personal experience and also from my education. And so that's kind of what gravitated um, my passion for the eating disorder population.
0: When you say trauma-informed experiences, can you share more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from a personal um, perspective, um, I grew up um, in a very um, great and loving family, um, but I was very much a black sheep, um, just didn't fit into um, a lot of social circles growing up um, and was kind of just like the oddball. Um, and I was really social despite, despite feeling like the black sheep in my family um and growing up i just went through um a lot of different experiences i was exposed to um different traumas in my life um domestic violence um sexual abuse um and things like that um and it really just molded me to see life differently and cope with life differently and a lot of that experience drove me to become a clinician um And so from there, when I was an undergrad, I really just started learning about, um, what trauma is and how people react to it and how they react to, um, being exposed to trauma differently. And part of what I learned is a lot of individuals, um, they tend to control their trauma in forms of different eating behaviors. And so, um, a lot of my experience growing up, um, despite ever living with an eating disorder, um, really came from my trauma.
0: Now, I hear you saying that a lot of people go to food for, to handle their, to cope with their uh, trauma experiences. And for you, it sounds like that that wasn't the path that you took. Uh how did you react especially as a as a kid uh to the traumas you experienced? What was your outlet
1: i think um it's really hard to say I think I went through different cycles of coping um for a while i I did a lot of working out and exercise, and some people would say um if if doing it in an unhealthy way that actually is a form of an eating disorder, but it was never. It was never that, um, that serious for me. Um, and so I did, I, did a, I did a bit of exercise um, around that time. Um, I was constantly around people. I couldn't be alone. Um, and, you know, I, I coped maladaptively as well for a while. Um, just like a, your normal college teenager, I went through a phase of drinking and hanging out with the wrong people. Um, and then it wasn't until I met a woman, um, who owns a nonprofit that, um, promotes and empowers, um, women and men that have been sexually assaulted or have been in domestic violent relationships, um, where I was really able to turn my life around and heal in the way I, I knew I needed to heal. And that was, um, by going to therapy, by seeing a therapist, by going to, um, to a group therapy um, session for victims and survivors of sexual assault. Um, that was really my turning point.
0: All right, I something just cut on in the background. I have to cut it off really quickly. Give me one sec. So you're in individual therapy, you're in group therapy. Do you remember any of the, what's the what do you remember from those experiences? And is there anything in terms of coping strategies or skills that uh still resonate with you today
1: yeah um i think the one thing that i really really got from being in a group therapy dynamic was hearing others story and knowing that i wasn't alone and Part of what I do now as a clinician um, is I run about eight to nine groups a week um, for individuals that um, have eating disorders and mood disorders um, and histories of trauma. Um, And I see how meaningful and empowering it is for them, just like it was for me to hear other people's story and to know that they're not alone when they feel like they're in such a dark place.
0: Story is so powerful. It's really the thing that helps to connect us all. And I think that's why literature is such a, a great outlet for people who are struggling with trauma or feeling alone. When you hear people's stories, besides sharing it, what's the next step after sharing your story about after after you open it up? Is it is there a, a reframing? Is there a rewriting? What do we do after we shared our story?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So part of trauma-informed care um, and working with someone particularly who has been exposed to trauma, it's important for them to tell their story more than once because it helps them heal from the trauma by talking about it. And so after they feel like it's normal for them to talk about it, um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that um, rewriting their story is what I do with them. That's more of a narrative um, approach. I'm more dialectical behavior therapy. And really what we try to teach them is learning how to be resilient with their trauma and what they've gone through, Um, not labeling themselves as a victim, but more of a survivor and utilizing um, dialectical behavior therapy skills, or even even cognitive behavior therapy skills, to manage the symptoms that are still currently interfering with their functioning in daily life.
0: What's the difference between a victim and a survivor?
1: I I used to call myself a victim, and now i I see it as I see it as. Not a negative statement but but a loss. Um, I see it as as a loss for ourselves and not the best label to put on someone that has experienced something that most likely wasn't their fault because a trauma isn't anyone 's fault. Things just happen. Um, Survivor, it's such an empowering word to use because it gives the person that went through that experience their power back. And so whenever I hear a patient call themselves a victim, I'm a victim to domestic violence. I'm a victim to sexual assault. I'm a victim to child abuse. I try to have them reframe it because when they say that, they feel powerless and part of my work with these individuals and part of the work that I went through when I was going through therapy is feeling like I could have that power back.
0: I, I love that. There, I, I feel that, you know, like Destiny, you know, who was that? Beyonce, I'm a survivor. <laughs> I mean, that's why that song had a million downloads, right? I mean, 50 million. I, I, every, you know, we've all been through trauma. I understand she tapped into something very visceral. Uh, with that song. I, I see the marketing plan now, Beyonce. Yeah. I'm on to you, boo. Um, is there a way for us to share our story um, in an empowering way? Or is that more narrative? Meaning, you know, sometimes people will use their story as a a way to stay in their story. You know, it's like, I'm just like that. that because uh, of this happened. Is there a difference between that and Like when we say share your story, what does that mean? What does that
1: entail? That's a really good question. I think um, so. This kind of applies to me when I was going through therapy, but also to my patients. When you first start telling your story, you're really just giving the narrative, you're telling the person what happened. And then as you continue to tell them over time, a year later, a month later, a week later, um, whatever that time frame may be, your story changes. And it changes because as you're in therapy and as you're working on your trauma and what you were exposed to, you're learning how to grow from the trauma. And so the story changes because the story is becoming more empowering. Um, I hope that makes sense.
0: That absolutely makes sense. I I think that with distance, with time, as you start learning more coping strategies and you start looking at the future more than the past, then Mm -hmm. your role in it, changes. And I I think also, as we get older, we start to recognize our power in the situation versus, I think initially, when things happen to us, uh, we feel powerless, which is why it's it's traumatizing. And then at some point, we recognize what our power was. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I had an incident with dogs. And at the moment, I felt powerless. And then as I kept talking about it and replaying it, I was like, oh, that, that there was my power right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Is there running eight to 10 groups a day? You're taking <laughs> in so much, or a week. I, I know you run or a total per week. It's not a day, right? It's like per week.
1: Oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's about eight to nine per week. I okay. do the, at most three day. <laughs>
0: You're taking in so many people's stories that has to get into your psyche. What's your process for cleansing your palate?
1: Self-care is so important in this field. Um, Burnout is high in the therapy field and we have got to take care of ourselves. Um, Thankfully, I've never been close to burnout. I never want to know what that feels like. And I think part of The reason why I haven't experienced that is because I'm so good with knowing when I need a mental health break. Um, So every day I come home, I don't check my emails. um, I don't check anything work related. I get on my yoga mat. I do some yoga. I'll do some light meditation, stretching. I'll have my aromatherapy. I'll go to the gym or I'll go on a walk. I'll meet friends, spend time with my pug. Um, and so self-care, I mean, no one in this field, um, is, um, no one in this field can do it without self-care because it is such a burnout field. You have to take care of yourself. You can't take care of other people and be present with other individuals' stories and problems every day for eight hours a day if you're not taking care of yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're pouring so much of yourself out to other people, you have to figure out a way to put that back in for
1: Mm -hmm. yourself.
0: I appreciate the work that you do uh, in that area. And I mean, and even if you're not for the listeners out there who are not even running eight to ten groups a week, uh, even if you work at, you know, McDonald's, like, you still have to come home and and do some self-care, take a little bubble bath, you know, uh, Netflixing and chilling is not typically restorative. Uh, it's typically more triggering, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and speak. So, speaking of triggers, so it, it sounds like the process: we, we experience a trauma in our childhood, we go to individual and group therapy to tell our story. How how does individual versus group therapy? How do they complement each other?
1: So, with individual um, therapy, my patients typically feel like they have. They don't need to have um, as much of a filter because they can really say whatever they want in the room as long as they know the exceptions to confidentiality, which I won't get into. Um, In a group dynamic, they have to be mindful, um, right? Because everyone has their own traumas. Um, We have different um, diagnoses going on. One person could easily trigger the other. Um, So typically with my groups, what I do is I just have particularly with the adults, the adolescent groups are more, um, you know, PG-13. I try to keep it, keep it there. Um, but with the adults, they always warn another patient in the room. Um, Hey, I'm going to talk about addiction or, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about, um, my domestic violent relationship. And if someone wants to leave the room, they leave the room or the other, the other patient has the right to say like, I, I really can't hear this right now. Like, I'm not in a good place to hear this. And so there's that respect.
0: I love that. And because there, there's so many triggers that are associated with uh, the traumas we've experienced. We can't know them all, right? Like, I, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's sight, there's sound, there's taste, there's touch, there's feel, um, there's time of day, there, there's temperature. There's all Mm -hmm. these different things, that, and so sometimes we don't know we've been triggered or or what's triggering us because so many things were uh, subliminal. Um, Are there exercises that you do in some of these group meetings to help people uh, connect or share, whether they're ice-breaking exercises or or ice-breaker exercises or just uh, exercises to help people connect and get into their story more?
1: Yeah. um, Whenever So we do open groups um, with my company. So a patient could come in, a new patient could come in at any moment um, and join the group. And of course that can throw off the whole group dynamic because the person is new. Um, But what I do, whenever that happens, I always spend a really good amount of time um, having them get to know each other outside of the eating disorder, outside of the trauma, outside of the addiction, outside of the mood disorder, whatever, um, whatever is present for them, whatever reason they are there for, I don't even want them to talk about it. Um, I allow them to talk about themselves outside of why they're in treatment. And that really gets them um, that really gets them close because they find commonalities um, outside of the disorder. Um, and that's empowering in itself.
0: I love that idea. That, that's that's beautiful. I appreciate you sharing that. And so there. Part of working through the trauma is what's, you know, going to individual therapy, going to group therapy, sharing your story, and then once they get home, uh, what do they do when they're by themselves to help them work through their story, through their narrative? Are you encouraging them to continue to share their story with other people in their family and friends?
1: Yes and no. Sometimes sometimes a patient um, is not necessarily ready to share their story um, with family and friends. It could actually be more harmful for their trauma um, and can impact them negatively. So it really just depends on the patient and where they are um, in their healing process. I have a lot of patients, um, including myself, um, I relate to this, where all I could do was talk to one person um, and write about it for two years until I was ready to share. And I have patients that are, that are like that. Um, but then I also have other patients um, that find it extremely therapeutic um, to talk about it, to pe- anyone that will listen. And um, that's a part of their healing um, early in their journey. So it really just depends on the patient and um, and their personality and, and where they are with their healing.
0: Earlier you brought up that, you know, you grew up in a neighborhood where you, it sounds like you didn't feel accepted. Uh, it sounds like you didn't, you didn't feel accepted at home in some aspects, but, but also uh, at school and in the neighborhood. Uh, rejection is such a huge trauma that I think yes. most people will sweep under the rug because you know it's not like it's not visible right it's it's an Mm -hmm. internal thing and it feels like I would imagine for most people that it pales in comparison to someone who's receiving physical trauma you know they're being beaten up at you know they're being abused at school they're being physically abused at home and they have Mm -hmm. scars on their body and so for someone who uh, is experiencing rejection they go well I'm not, at least I'm not going through that. So I'm not going to get help not realizing how traumatizing rejection is. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of individuals go through some form of rejection of rejection, um, during their tra- childhood. And this is a form of historical trauma, um, you know, funny enough, 60% of those that are affected by eating disorders said that bullying contributed to the development of their eating disorder. And again, bullying is a form of trauma um, and people just don't recognize that.
0: Can you define bullying? Because I feel like there's such a, um, a vague term, kind of like uh, anxiety. It's like, are you, are you anxious or are you just worried? Like there's a, there's a difference there. What's the spectrum of, of bullying that that can occur for, for people out there who may be undergoing it and uh, may not even realize it?
1: Yeah, I think that um, bullying is so much more than just physical aggression. I think that actually most individuals who are um, exposed to that sort of trauma, it's more so verbal bullying, harassment, Um um, shaming someone for their personality, for the way that they look, for their weight, um, for their religion, for their race. All of those, um, all of those um, statements are just as harmful as being physically bullied.
0: Yeah, I just read Roxane Gay's book called Hunger, and she talked about how she went through a, um, there was a sexual abuse in her childhood, And Mm -hmm. she felt like she couldn't share it with her parents because Mm. it would shatter the idea that she felt they had of her of being the good daughter. And I think this it's so painful that so many parents are doing what they feel is the right thing in terms of uh, raising good children. And they're so mm-hmm. proud when they have good children. And I think what's not talked enough about is that good children often won't share their traumas, their experiences, their rejections because they're so caught up in trying to be good children. I see you nodding your head.
1: You're absolutely right. Um, everything you say, you're saying right now, is a hundred percent accurate. A lot of people that are exposed to trauma, specifically domestic violence and sexual abuse, do not tell their parents um, because there continues to be this stigma of, well, you know, what were you doing? And that question makes it, sends a message that it's the person's fault that went through that trauma. And no matter what you were wearing, no matter where you were, um, no matter how you acted, Um, No matter if you were under the influence of drugs or alcohol, it is never that person's fault. And I think that there's a lot of shame in society um, regarding that. Um, And that makes it very difficult for individuals who have been exposed to that type of trauma to tell their parents, hey, this is what I went through. Um, I also think that it makes it hard for individuals to press charges against um, the perpetrator and the cycle just continues.
0: Absolutely. And so are there, are there tips for children, because I know I have kids who listen, who don't know where to start in opening up about the trauma. And then are there tips for parents who may be receiving this information for the first time in terms of how to respond and how not to respond?
1: Very good questions. Um, so for the children that are listening, find an adult that you feel comfortable with, whether it's a babysitter, whether it is um, one of your friend's parents, whether it's a teacher or a counselor, find an adult that you feel comfortable with because that is so important. Um, for parents, validate Don't interrupt them when they're telling you their story. They don't want to be interrupted. Don't even say, I'm sorry. Don't even ask questions like, well, what were you doing? Or where were you? Don't probe. Just listen and validate what they're saying.
0: I'm still learning how to validate what my girlfriend says. It's so tough. Uh, because it is <laughs> it, it's, it's it's a practice, and I, I think that you know one of the challenges with validation when someone's sharing their trauma with you is that we're so out of practice in validating people in in our everyday conversations because we're always interrupting each other, or not listening in, or shutting down, or you know mm-hmm. we're all in our head. That then, when it's go time, when there is a trauma, when someone needs us to show up for them emotionally. Uh, we've forgotten the skills of validation. And so, you know, I, I tell people you, these communication skills, what you learn in therapy, we have to practice uh, in, in our daily routine so that when stuff is hitting the fan, uh, we're already, we're primed and ready. We don't have to get ready. We're, we're already ready. We're already, we're already in practice, Cause it becomes hard when, when the kid uh, shares something, uh, you know, like that. And, and then you have to be like, all right, what am I supposed to do? and What am I supposed to do?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely hear you. I actually teach um, validation and what invalidation looks like to my patient's parents and to my adult patients, because a lot of people know what validation is, but they don't know how to apply it. And, um, parents specifically um, need that type of help with building their validation skills to help their children through treatment.
0: Can you give us an example? Say a kid is uh, um, upset. You know, they come home upset. They, they got a, 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 a C on their test and they thought they were mm-hmm. going to get an A and they're like, my life is over. I got a C. I'm going to flunk out. I'm so stupid. It's over." It, 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 right. It, it, it's so laughable because it, it's it's like such a it feels so ridiculous to us. But to the kid that see is everything and it's the world and um, and it, it's the it's the end of them. And, 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 you know, they'll never get a job as a cashier at the very least uh, at, at that moment. You know, and as a parent, you're just like, ah, you'll be fine. But what yeah. should the what would be a more effective means of communication uh, and validation for a parent?
1: Yeah. I would just say something like, Tommy, I hear that you're very upset right now um, that you didn't get the grade that you expected. Tell me how this is making you feel and how I can help you.
0: I love that. How does it make you feel and how does it help you? Now, I imagine most kids don't know emotions. That's the one thing that we're not teaching kids is to label their emotions. I grew up with either pissed or cool. That, That was the extent or uh, crazy or normal, that, that those were the four corners of emotional intelligence. Uh, are there, and most, I think most parents aren't walking around with this emotional uh, intelligent chart. Are you, are you, as part of the education teaching kids <laughs> to expand their emotional intelligence or, or yeah, vocabulary? I,
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually do this with my um, adolescent patients and my adult patients. Um, this sounds really cheesy, but it it works for my adults and they love it. Um, They have a emotion wheel and there's like, I don't know, like 40 to 50 emotions on this wheel. And when I teach, um, when I do my emotion regulation groups with these patients, the first thing that I have them do um, in the first five to 10 minutes of this group is identify where they are on the emotion wheel. And that's where we start processing from there.
0: I love it. Yeah, it's like, what are you feeling? Where do you feel it? And how are you? I, you know, I've called the suicide prevention hotline twice. And I, I remember when, I, when they first picked up, they're like, where are you at on a one to 10? And I remember being like nine. And mm-hmm. by the end, I was at a zero. And it's something that I'd always take with me. I love that now because it gives me a way of gauging my emotional state. Like I like the, I like the number system. Um, yeah, measuring is use, really
1: powerful. You use the measuring
0: <laughs> also. Can you speak more to that?
1: Yeah, I do. Specifically for my patients that um, are high with um, their suicidal ideation or self-harm urges, um, a lot of my individual check-ins with patients, if they're um, anywhere, if they identify with either either of those um, issues, I always say, hey, Tommy, I know last week um, you engaged in self-harm. Um, tell me where you are on a scale of zero to 10, zero being you don't have any urges to self-harm and 10 being you really want to hurt yourself. And then they'll give me, I don't know, let's say he's an, at an eight today. And I say, okay, what can we do to get you sol- to get yourself to a, to a 7.5 or a seven on that scale? And then we do some solution analysis and figure out how we can get him to feel a little bit more safe until our next session
0: so what, what do you typically come up with? You know, I, I like that. How do we get you to a seven point five or a seven? and what what have been some of the strategies to get Timmy or billy or or Pat or Jane from you know a ten to a seven point five?
1: Really good question. So, a lot of what I do with my patients, I see my patients as strength based patients. So my assumption is is that every patient that I see, already has the strength and capabilities to succeed on their own, to heal on their own, um, and to work on themselves, but they just need that extra push. And so I'm utilizing their strengths, but I'm also working on providing them with new skills to help them with, um, distress tolerance and self-soothing. So if I have a patient that, um, has trouble staying away from sharps. We're gonna try and figure out. Okay, what else can you do with your hands when you're at an eight or nine on that scale? Do we need to get you silly putty? Do we need to get you a rubber band to play with um, and put around your fingers? Um, we explore all of those types of things.
0: With eating disorders, you know, there's anorexia, there's bulimia. When we and I know we talked about it's all linked to trauma. Have we found that there are different traumas linked to each one of the different eating disorders?
1: I don't think that there's much research on, um, on that. I know that there are links with all eating disorders, specifically mostly anorexia um, and um, maybe some bulimia where you'll find links with those individuals um, that have been diagnosed that have a series of trauma. Um, What I will say is while no one knows the causes of eating disorders for sure, surveys and research suggests that um, it's a range of biological, psychological, and sociocultural factors. And part of the sociocultural factors and the psych- psychological factors are, is trauma.
0: It's, it's such a tough thing to deal with. You know, I've mentioned before that I'm in a sugar and carbs anonymous group and mm-hmm. food is such a huge part of most cultures. And, you know, you grew up in a household where uh, it's like eat everything on your plate, everything shoved in front of you. And so you grow up where it's like, it's not a big deal to shove your face in, to pass out uh, on a couch or in bed uh, from stuffing your face or or even using food as a coping mechanism. I, you know, I remember my mom giving me ice cream when I got stung by a bee as a kid. And, and then you become an adult and then you realize that the deleterious effects of food on your body and your health over the long term. You can't eat ice cream every time. You feel uncomfortable. How do we separate those two? How, how do we... What are the steps? Because I would imagine that if somebody's doing an eating disorder and they're in their family system, they're like, "So I can't eat with the rest of my family." Like that's the other challenge, also.
1: Yeah. Um, so we, with the company that I work with, if we have an adult or even an adolescent in treatment with us, it's expected that their family system is is basically in treatment with them too. Now, the primary patient is the one with the eating disorder. But if, if we're dealing with an adolescent that's still living at home with mom, dad, and, and their two brothers, they, as part of the treatment, they need to be eating exactly what the patient is eating, the same amount. They need to be at the dinner table together um, because if they're not doing that, the family is basically enabling the patient's eating disorder.
0: And also, I would imagine that would help the patient to feel more supported also. It's kind of like uh, a kid who's diagnosed with cancer, loses their hair, and then everybody in the family shaves their head.
1: Right. Very similar.
0: The All right. So I have, I have a few questions here. I was reading that kids of alcoholics, alcoholic parents, if the parents are alcoholics, the kid typically develops a sugar addiction because alcohol breaks down into sugar, basically, in the body. Have you found that? Because I know you talked about the uh, influence of the family on addiction with with kids.
1: I haven't found that in regard to um, like when we're thinking about eating disorders. Um, But what I will say is a biological piece of being diagnosed with an eating disorder is having a close relative with an eating disorder. So just like someone with, I'm not sure about the sugar, um, the science behind the sugar. um, But just like with growing up in a home where You have a parent that's addicted to either alcohol or drugs. The child is more susceptible to also being addicted to the drug or the alcohol that the parent is addicted to.
0: So we've talked about going into individual therapy, group therapy, the differences between those two and how they complement each other. We also talked about the importance of uh, the family being on the same meal plan as the kid struggling with uh, the eating disorder. or Even a, an adult, I would assume, in married couples where, like, I got a sugar thing, and, and it's really... I feel supported because my girlfriend, uh, you know, she doesn't keep sweets in the house. I'm like, you got to get it all out the house because if it's there, I'm going to eat it.
1: That okay. is
0: supportive. I'm sure she just, like, got better at hiding whatever, whatever sugar uh, that, that she enjoys. <laughs> um. Are there other pieces that we need to look at or be aware of?
1: Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, Eating disorder treatment is very complex because it's a medical diagnosis as well. Um, And something else um, nationally that medical providers struggle with, not to say that they all do, um, is they're not informed on how to deal with patients that come into medical facilities With an eating disorder. Um, Typically, all they care about is weight. Um, If someone um, is over their expected um, body weight, they assume that they may not have anorexia or nervosa, um, and that's just not true. Um, And they're just not really informed with eating disorders. Um, So I would say systemically, medical providers need to work on educating themselves on eating disorders outside of the physical medical implications that eating disorders cause because the way that we talk to our patients um, is just as important as the way that we treat them medically. Um, So I would say that's really important. Um, I would also say for continued care purposes, after they have um, been um, been in treatment they need to find outpatient providers to continue care and recovery. They can't just go about life normally. They're going to be in recovery for the rest of their lives. And that means going to see a therapist once a week that is um, eating disorder informed, um, seeing a dietitian to make sure that they are meeting their meal plan and um, eating the foods that they need to eat, um, monitoring whether or not they should be exercising or engaging in movement. Um, And then also, if needed, seeking psychiatric services as well for medication.
0: Are there gender differences in what you're seeing with eating disorders?
1: Yeah. um, So right now, um, I think that this is right. National surveys are estimating that 20 million women and 10 million men in America will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. Um, I believe that underserved populations are more susceptible, just like those that have experienced trauma. Um, So underserved populations being the LGBTQ plus communities, um, people of color, um, people that are um, not in financially stable communities, um, and individuals like that.
0: Yeah, I I could see that because the more stress in your life, uh, the more you're likely i would imagine to go to the food to kind of cope with the stressors of you know maybe you have a a hour two hour commute for a lot of people especially in a lower socioeconomic status of getting to work and then finding work and um, Mm -hmm. and just the atmosphere of of urban environments the noise and the sounds and um, the the Inconsistencies—that's not the word I'm looking for—but there's a lot of stressors that come with living in a city that I think we don't realize contribute to our overall well-being.
1: Yeah, there's definitely environmental factors that play a role in um, in potentially having an eating disorder.
0: So, what what, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh. What did I have for breakfast this morning? I had, oh, I had two of these. um, They're in the form of a muffin, but they have like zucchini, carrots, raisins, and cinnamon inside them. And they're really good.
0: Oh, that sounds incredible. Zucchini muffins. All right, I'm going to put mm-hmm. that recipe up. You made that yourself or you got that? It's not like a Trader Joe's thing, right?
1: There. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you the brand, though. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. All right. That, that, I'm all for that. Wait, are there, so what, we talked a lot about kids and family systems and kids struggling with eating disorders. And is there a role that the school can play in terms of helping them also cope with their eating disorder?
1: Yes, so a big part of children being in treatment um, is making sure that they don't fall behind in their school. Something that I really love about my company is we have scheduled class times for our ch- um, for our children to work on schoolwork while they're also in treatment. Um, and part of what we do is we communicate with the school, um, specifically like the school counselor or maybe their homeroom teacher, um, to give them an idea of what accommodations we need for the children. We don't necessarily tell them that they're in treatment because of HIPAA and privacy rights and things like that. Um, But we just let them know that um, they are seeking medical attention um, and they need accommodations. And for the most part, the schools have been really understanding um, with the absences and accommodating the children that are in treatment.
0: I love that. So I love that there's also that opportunity for kids with. It sounds like for kids with eating disorders that they may have to, uh, they may not necessarily have to be able to be in school uh, for the full day to receive the treatment that they need. And and I would, you know, it's the same thing that you would do for work, right? Like um, you might have to take a few days off work or maybe a week or two off work to. And so, how long, you know, with the company you're working with? Is this something that you, you're working with the kid for a semester, for the year? Like uh, somebody coming in with anorexia or bulimia, how long is that, that plan usually in place for?
1: So it typically ranges. If we get a patient that admits that's medically unstable and needs residential treatment, they'll start with our inpatient um, hospital. I currently am only doing partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient. So those are the two levels of care that are below Um, the residential inpatient. So once a patient leaves from residential inpatient, or if they start at the PHP level of care, the partial hospitalization, you're looking at anywhere from six to 10 weeks for partial hospitalization. And that means that they are in our chair, in our facility from 8.30 in the morning until 3.30 um, in the afternoon. Is
0: there any... Part of the treatment plan that we haven't discussed uh, for people struggling, especially for kids struggling with eating disorders, from individual to group to getting a dietician to, um, you know, getting another therapist once you're outside of the, the program to making the school aware of, you know, what the kid is going through and making sure that the family is also involved in, you know, being on board with the meal plan for the child. Is there, is there any, are there any other components that, um, that are incorporated?
1: Yeah, absolutely. From, from a therapeutic perspective alone, um, the treatment plan for every patient is very unique, but there are particular categories that I assess for when I meet a patient for the first time. And those areas are, of course, the eating disorder. There will always be a goal for that. Um, The second category is body image. Majority of eating disorder patients do have significant body image distress. Not all of them, though, um, but majority of them do. Um, And then there's also the mental health component. Are we dealing with a patient that has a co-occurring diagnosis? Um, We get a lot of patients that have the primary eating disorder diagnosis, but then they might have PTSD, um, they might have... um, some depression, generalized anxiety disorder, even bipolar one. Um, And so if that's the case, we need to have that mental health goal as well to work on managing their mood. And then the final one that we work on specifically with the adolescents and children, not so much the adults, unless they feel like they really need assistance with this, is um, a family and community of support goal. Um, what What does support look like in the home? What does support look like in the community? And how can we make a goal around that?
0: Beautiful that, you know, because it does take a village to raise a child. Yes. Are there instances <laughs> where the eating, dis- the disordered eating is a healthy adaption where we go, we have to keep this in place for now because there's too much of these other things that are distressing. And if we remove that, then we can't address any of Does that question make sense to you?
1: I think I get what you're saying. And, the, and I think from, from what you're saying, the answer is not really because eating disorders, there's always that medical component, um, whether you're overeating or undereating, the patient is medically unstable. And so you have to treat the eating disorder. Um, there's also, um, specifically for our anorexic uh, patients, there's the malnutrition component. If they're not feeding themselves, they're, they can't think. And if they can't think clearly and thoughtfully, how are we supposed to work on the symptoms that are causing the eating disorder? It's impossible. And so they have to be medically stabilized and they have to have the correct nutrients in order for treatment to work.
0: Great. And and is there anything that I I know? There's a million things that we haven't. I have one more question because I know you also counsel uh, uh, couples. Also, what are couples typically coming in for? Is it is it trauma or is it betrayal?
1: So, with the company that I'm currently working for right now, I don't see couples, um, but I do have a a significant history working with couples, and majority of them come in for many different reasons, but typically what I get is, um, intimacy issues or affairs.
0: Okay. Uh, Affair sounds like an intimacy issue. What's the difference between intimacy and affair?
1: Yeah. Um, well, intimacy, they could come in, they may not be having an affair, but there may be, um, circumstances where one partner may not be, um, getting their intimate needs met from the other partner. So that would be an example of like what we would talk about in therapy and like how we would go about working on improving that. And then the affair part that's self-explanatory and is very, um, very typical in marriages. Um, it's very underreported, um, but infidelity happens a lot um, in relationships and a lot of couples come in for that.
0: Yeah, you know, the, the intimacy part, I understand, because communication is a huge part of intimacy. And we were talking about validation earlier. And so much of being in a relationship is seeing the other person, understanding the other person, validating them. And once again, we it's not really a practice skill for most people, especially for men uh (laughs) and i I mean for women i I was watching uh you know some girlfriends talk the other day and they were just like yeah girl this is valid i mean it was this validation it was a tundra validation and (laughs) and like dudes we never we just we're all stats we're just all like he ran 3.5 yards temperature like we're all numbers and uh and so i could imagine once in a relationship that there's gonna be some intimacy issues. Like, how do you teach someone to validate, or I know we talked a little bit about that with kids, but is it different in adult couples?
1: It really isn't different. Um, You just have to work on rewording how you respond to people. and I teach couples the same way that I would teach an adult in one of my groups or a child in one of my groups. The way that we respond is key. And I would say that communication does play a very big role um, in intimacy because if a partner doesn't feel like they're being heard or validated, they're definitely not going to want to be intimate with, a, with their partner.
0: I, I could, you know, one day I came home and my girl looked at me and she's like, Where were you? And that triggered all types of uh, emotions in me. And I, I didn't understand it. And I was upset. And I was like, I don't, but it bugged me because I didn't know why I was upset. I was like, she's asking where I was. I understand mm-hmm. that. However, there it, it, it was so many emotions wrapped up in it. And then I realized I wanted her to say, hey, I missed you. Like that would have been a softer approach. But that there you was, go. I was like, that's just a hard, but for, for me to get there, Lori, you understand? <laughs> like I have a master's in counseling psychology. Like that, like I just got there two weeks ago. You understand? <laughs> I can't like, like the average guy out there stands no chance. I, I mean, I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's what I wanted from her. Okay. And then I was like, babe, next time I come in, I just need you to be like, I miss you. And then, and then I understand what you're saying versus where were you? I felt a little aggressive, you know? But whoo, like it it feels like a workout, like that's a a whole other workout right there to to have to click through all those emotions and take a breath and.
1: It's seriously all about practice, like just being intentional with how you respond to people. Something that helped me um, improve my ability to validate was to not think about what I was going to say while the other person was talking And to try and just be intentional on listening to every word that they say before I even respond. Because you're missing so much information when you're thinking about what you're going to say. And then I would also say, I think oftentimes when there's tension in a dyad or there's tension in the home, that's not the appropriate time to have a conversation. You have to identify how you're feeling, go back to it and then talk about it when you feel like you're grounded, when you feel calm, because if the emotions are high, one, you're not gonna be able to validate the other person, and two, you're not even going to be able to express how you're actually feeling.
0: So it sounds like this idea of don't go to bed angry. I think a lot of people misinterpreted that to think it means that we gotta deal with this right now before we go to Mm -hmm. bed, when really it's like it means if you're upset and I'm upset, we have to go figure out a way for us to soothe ourselves versus we got to solve this problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, And I would say if you're ever in a situation like this, you could easily just say, hey, I feel emotionally dysregulated right now. My response is not going to be meaningful or helpful to this conversation. I need an hour to cool off. Or let's continue this conversation tomorrow so we can have a better discussion, period.
0: I love that. And I'm going to add the period, too. Period. (laughs) (laughs) No emojis. No emojis. No LOLs. (laughs) Period. I like that. Uh, Lori, we talked about a lot today. Is there anything that uh, you want to share that we haven't talked about?
1: I think we covered it. I just want to thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, I enjoy it very much. And um, I'm excited to share this with everyone. So thank you so much for having me.
0: I I love you being here. And then uh, plug all your things. Where are you? I'm a a link to all of it in the show notes. And are there, you know, first before you even answer that, are there any books that you recommend to, to listeners? Anybody going through an eating disorder or for couples?
1: Oh my gosh. I have so many books, but you're putting me on the spot right now. So I will email them to you and you can link them with my social handle.
0: (laughs) I love it. Fair enough. And those will be in the show notes. And then last question, because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Lori?
1: Oh my gosh. I would let them know that their story isn't over. um, That they're brave for living a life that feels so dark and that they're not alone and that help is real and hope is real.
0: I love that. Help is real. Hope is real. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Or you calling the 1-800-S-U-I-C-I-D-E or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other million phone numbers listed in the show notes? Whether you're in Sri Lanka, Budapest, you're in Iowa, there are International Suicide Hotline phone numbers. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, uh, where can people go? Is there a National Eating Disorder Hotline?
1: Yeah, there actually is. Um, So you can go to the national eating disorders.org dash helpline chat, or you can call 800-931-2237, or you can text NEDA to 741-741 for 24 seven crisis support.
0: I love it. 741-741 for 24-7 crisis support. That, those will also be in the show notes. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you.